The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. Good afternoon. This is Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm joined today by Anya Manuel, who has just written a terrific book called This Brave New World, which talks about the two rising powers in this universe, India and China. It is a fabulous book, and I would argue, in fact, it's a must-read because so little has been written where we one puts China and India side by side. And you do, I should say, a spectacular job of understanding both. I can comment a lot on China, but on India, I have to say I'm a true neophyte. So my first question is, why this book, and why did you write it now? Right. Thank you, Steve. That's very, very kind of you. Truthful um, too. Thank you.、Um, this book has been a long time coming. So I actually grew up in Pakistan,、uh, right near the Karakoram Highway, which leads into wild western China, and near the disputed. Border of India, so this has been an interest for a long time. Why write it now? I was looking at our discourse, our public discourse, and there's so much that's said about China. We seem really worried about it. One day they seem ten feet tall, and the next day in the headlines they're the drone dragon, and their economy is going to collapse. Well, the truth about China is actually somewhere in between, and I wanted to say that. And India, which is the other great rising power. We frankly talk very little about in our public discourse, and actually, both of these countries are going to have a dramatic impact on us right here in America over the next decade. Why do you think so few people have written on this? As I was th- reading this book, I was thinking, "Why、well, I, I can't think of someone else who has kind of undertaken putting these two soon-to-be Goliaths side by side." Honestly, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know why I think we need to focus on both of them, and it's because within one decade, maybe a little more, between the two countries, you're going to have three billion people, the two largest middle classes on earth. Our companies are going to be selling to them if we continue to trade, and it is already the case, and will be the case even more. That we just can't solve big international problems without them. So even today, a smog cloud from Asia comes all the way to California, where I live. Twenty percent of our pollution on the West Coast is actually created in China, and climate change is absolutely not solvable without both of these countries, which will be the first and third largest carbon emitters within the next decade. So we need to focus on both. What surprised you the most when you wrote the book about India and about China? I think what was new for me. I've spent decades now, both in the State Department, working with both of their governments, sometimes at very senior levels. I now have a company with Condoleezza Rice and others where we help U.S. businesses expand. So I've seen the elite of China and India. What was the most interesting to me in writing this book, and I try to tell the stories, is. The other half. So I interviewed、um, and shadowed a family in the slums of Delhi, in their corrugated 
iron huts with no electricity, with no plumbing. They make their living by scrounging from a trash dump that's three football fields high, and they recycle the materials they find there, and that's how they make a living. Right. And, and from a lower caste, if I remember your description in the book. Yeah, the these folks were actually Muslim, so it's, it's different. They don't have the caste system, mm-hmm. but a lot of lower caste Hindus are in that situation mm-hmm. as well. And on China, just learning about how factory workers live and work. They aren't quite as destitute as the Indians, but they're living eight or even 16 to a room in bunk beds. They have plumbing, they have electricity, so it's a different situation. It's frankly a much better situation than the urban poor in India, but it's still not something that I'd seen very often. So I met a lot of wonderful people while I was writing this book, and I tried to tell their stories. You kind of, the book reflects a kind of a grudging respect for the Chinese system. Is that a fair kind of summary? I try not to take sides on the system. Uh, I get asked a lot, well, which system is better? Obviously, we work, we live in a democracy, and you know the Indian system is much more resilient because it's a democracy. Um, the Chinese, by virtue of being authoritarian, have one benefit and one downside. The benefit is if you decide you want to get something done, it's easier than in India. And in a lot of cases, it's easier than in the United States. So I think China, for example, got very serious about um, cleaning up their environment five years ago or so. Now China spends twice as much as the United States on clean technology. Ten billion dollars last. One sorry, one hundred and ten billion dollars last year, compared to the U.S.'s fifty-six billion. So that's pretty impressive. Very hard for a democracy like ours or like India's to do that. But because it's authoritarian, it's brittle. It's like glass. It's very rigid. If you tap it just the wrong way, it just might break. One of the interesting comparisons in the book is is kind of corruption in the in India's society and corruption in China's society. How do you contrast the two? Right. Well, they're both corrupt. <laughs> they both have a long way to go. And I think the style of corruption itself actually isn't all that different. How they are trying to address it is very different and really a reflection of the two different systems. So in China, as you know better than anyone, it's been all top-down. When you meet with Wang Shishan the Chinese anti-corruption czar, and you hear him talk about his corruption crackdown, he hardens visibly. And this is all about the purity of the Communist Party and making sure that they rule for another century. So the Chinese have been quite good at arresting people and investigating hundreds of thousands of them. India, because it's a democracy and because power is more dispersed, all of the anti-corruption efforts have been bottom-up. So there's a gentleman named Anna Hazare, short, elderly gentleman with big spectacles, looks a little bit like Gandhi, and he just had enough a few years ago. So he sat down in a true Indian style. He started a hunger strike, neo-Gandhian fashion, and more and more and more people joined until you had tens of thousands of Indians protesting. Now, what, what's happened is on the Indian side, you've started on the bottom end. You've started a biometric ID system 
which helps with some of the lower level graft. India needs to do more to make its court system, which is pretty fair and independent from politics, they need to make it faster. So they need to prosecute cases faster, and they also need to prosecute the big guns. Um, China needs to make their prosecutions less political, and they need to do a big teaching and ethics campaign push throughout. You can't solve this problem by just arresting the people who are the big guns being the most corrupt. If you look at Hong Kong, they did all the above. They arrested the most corrupt people. They created an independent, non-political commission that quickly dealt with these cases. They had a comprehensive education campaign in all of the schools. And in that case, not in all cases that worked, but in that case, they actually also raised some civil government salaries. That's what a comprehensive campaign looks like. Neither India or China are doing that now. I, I, I noticed that that uh, analogy in the book and read it carefully, and I'm a great believer that the ICAC in Hong Kong played an incredibly important role in cleaning it up. However, Hong Kong institutions, an independent judiciary, a free and open media, were integral to that process also. Does China need to do the same? I think it would certainly help. It's helping in, in India. And it not only helps with corruption problems, but all of these things that are open and free help you create a more resilient society. When you talk about kind of U.S. policy towards both India and China, is it fair to summarize kind of what you say is cooperate, 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 that the focus of the policy should be finding areas where the United States can cooperate and kind of trying to deal with the areas where we our interests are not shared, but deal with them in a kind of low-key, quiet manner rather than the way it's kind of done today. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair summary? or That is a fair summary of what I'm proposing. I also would complement our diplomats working on both of these countries because, by and large, policy towards India and policy towards China have been fairly bipartisan across different U.S. administrations, and they plug along somewhere in the common-sense middle. That's great. Bill Clinton did a big opening to India. George W. Bush doubled down with the civilian nuclear deal and a lot of new um, cooperation. And Obama hasn't has been quite good on India as well. In China, things plug along somewhere. You can quibble with people around the margins. What I say in the book is, we're going to continue to have disagreements, just like you said. We should keep them quiet um, and mostly try to solve them behind the scenes. But we need to be very clear, especially with the Chinese, and consistent about where the lines are. And we haven't always been good at that. So, for example, with freedom of navigation exercises in the South China Sea, we were doing them for a while. Then we stopped for three years. And now under Secretary Carter, we're doing them again. If I'm the PLA, I'm a little bit confused. <laughs> so that's one example of where we could be a little bit more consistent. Very hard. Subtlety and consistency is very hard for us. Is it possible in today's political environment in the United States to follow that kind of policy? Not if Donald Trump is president. <laughs> <laughs> You've worked in a Republican administration. <laughs> Still not a Trump fan. <laughs> the How should the U.S.? You know, the Chinese perceive our 
policy, whether it's the rebalance, the pivot slash rebalance, or or things we did in the Senkaku Diaoyudao in the South China Sea, in a whole with India, with Southeast Asia, with Vietnam, Malaysia, the Philippines, as an attempt to contain China. Even though we argue that is not the case, that is the view yes. of the China. You talk to diplomats, you talk to folks in the think tanks. That's that's their view. In that context, is, should we be more careful of kind of how we articulate the policy with India? Is that something where the Chinese see that as the far eastern part of the containment, in fact? That's right. That's um, right. How should we kind of approach the policy? That's a good question. And I think, again, this requires subtlety and consistency, both hard. It is great that we are doing more militarily with India. We now exercise more with India than with any other country on earth. It is, you know, frankly, China's actions have driven the smaller Southeast Asian powers closer into our arms. The Vietnamese want us back in Vietnam, for God's sakes, right? That that didn't happen all by itself. Um, But I think you're right to point out that we need to, as often as we can, put ourselves in China's shoes. And we do need to be careful that this isn't seen as encirclement of China. So, for example, you talk to them more than I do, but when I talk to folks from the PLA and Chinese diplomats, you look at it from their perspective. We radiate power pretty close to their coasts. It must be worrisome to see our aircraft carrier groups sailing very close to Hainan Island, for example. You know, the first island chain is only a couple hundred miles off the coast. Um, they are the ocean is the lifeline of China. Eighty percent of their oil goes through this tiny narrow strip of ocean in the Malacca Strait. If we shut that off, that would be a real problem for the Chinese economy. So you can understand why they're worried, and that's why I say in the book, clear, consistent lines, but cooperate, cooperate, cooperate. The military piece is the hardest of that. We've done a lot of good things recently. A lot more conversations. Um, behind the scenes with the PLA. I understand there's a lot of work being done to avoid accidents at sea. A colleague of mine at Stanford, Gary Ruffhead, used to be the chief of the U.S. Navy, gets a lot of credit in some of the Track 2 dialogues because he made a simple suggestion to the Chinese. He said, just let the Chinese sailors talk to our sailors when we see each other. And now they're all practicing Mandarin and practicing English together, right? It's much harder to come to blows when you have simple communication mechanisms and right. like that. And it's interesting, the USS Blue Ridge, Blue Ridge is in Shanghai today. That's right. But the fleet was denied access to Hong Kong. It's right. kind of a somewhat contradictory relationship. I think we're out of time, but I've been with Anja Manuel, Anya, excuse me, <laughs> who in addition to writing this wonderful book, this brave new world, which I would repeat is a must-read for those of you interested in China and India, is co-founder and partner with former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, National Security Advisor Steve Hadley, and Secretary of Defense Robert Gates in Rice Hadley Gates LLC, a strategic consulting firm. Thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. Thank you very much.